Um, This morning, we're going to start a new series out of the book of Genesis. Uh, The book of Genesis is really capturing the beginnings, the, the beginning of the earth and the people who inhabit it, which would be us, right? It's also one of the most misunderstood and controversial books in all of Scripture. Now, isn't that interesting that you can't get one line into the first book of Scripture without human beings creating some form of controversy, some form of argument or disagreement? You know, in the beginning, God, and right there, we're like, oh, wait a minute. What do you mean by God? What, what God are you talking about? Like, what, what's how? I don't even know if I believe in God. Like, the book of Genesis has so much controversy. The first words of the Bible create a tension in our North American society, especially, that probably doesn't even really need to be there. And so I'm hoping to strip away many of your misunderstandings and to, to really learn to hear the core message behind what is actually uh, the purpose, the intention of this narrative in the book of Genesis. Now, folks, by calling it a story right away, I get emails and people freaking out because they're like, he called the book a story. Don't misunderstand me. In no way am I giving an opinion of whether it's historical or whether it's fictional or anything like that. The reason that I'm calling it a story is because that actually simply captures best how the Hebrew people communicated in ancient times. Now, that being said, this concept of story and this story, this narrative in the book of Genesis being an ancient story is actually a really important concept so that we can strip away some of the controversy. You see, Genesis, and most people probably wouldn't argue with me, is old. Right? Genesis is old. It's an ancient story. And so, therefore, it has to be read through an ancient lens in order for us to receive the beautiful point of the entire message. There's a specific point, folks, that's being made in this text, and it moves us way beyond our North American arguments that are based on science or an argument of literal or not literal. Folks, Genesis is not trying to give us a detailed account of history as though it's speaking as some kind of modern-day textbook. It's, It's not a textbook, and it shouldn't ever be read like it's trying to answer the questions of history or science. Folks, it's an ancient story written at a particular time to a particular group of people. I'm going to say that again. Genesis is an ancient story written at a particular time to a particular group of people. The book of Genesis, when read through this ancient lens, it draws us into the story of how God Israel's one true God, Yahweh, created the world and more importantly, created humanity, us as human beings. 
It shows us the beginning of God's relationship with humanity, and it invites us into a deeper understanding of where we actually come from and why we're here in the first place. Because folks, I think we have drastically lost our way. We're going to talk a little bit about that when we get into Genesis uh, chapter 2 and 3. But even beyond just the fall, I think we've lost the core of who we are as human beings because of the distractions all around us. And this is exactly why I think that our church needs to spend a little bit of time in this book, the very first book of the Bible, so that we can be reminded of why we're here. What is the purpose behind humanity in the first place? Why being connected to our origins is so important for us to remember. You ever heard the phrase, never forget where you came from? that when you forget where you came from, you kind of begin to lose your identity. I think that that's what is often happening in our world today. So we're gonna open our Bibles to the first book. You folks that usually check the index, you're not gonna have to today, right? We're all gonna be amazing at sword drills because we're gonna go to page number one uh, in our Bibles, page number one, there might be like a whole bunch of jargon about translations and different things like that, family trees, all that kind of stuff. But where the text actually begins is page number one, Genesis uh, chapter one. So as we're doing that, um, I just wanted to throw this out there as you're turning uh, your Bibles open, because I can see that's happening right before my eyes. <laughs> These screens, right? Anyway, it'll come up on the screen, so you'll be able to follow along with me. Now, some believe that Moses is the author of Genesis. And many others believe that it actually wasn't Moses, that it was somebody else. And so it's either like really, really ancient or just like kind of ancient. So an old reading of it would be the Moses theory, and a younger reading of it would be a non-Moses theory. So if you think that Moses wrote the book, great. If you think that Moses didn't write the book, great. End of discussion. Because it doesn't actually change what the book is trying to say. And that's my heart here, folks. I don't want you to miss something extremely important in Genesis because we're going to get caught up on human-based arguments and theories. It was written, this is what you need to know. Genesis was written during a time when the world was saturated in pagan gods. So the world was saturated in the concept of there being many gods and these many gods holding these many powers. And many of these different pagan expressions of religion, they had a lot of different narratives around how the world and humanity came to be through these gods. And so they didn't argue about there being the world and humanity being created by the gods. What the argument actually was, was, well, which one? What war, what thing happened to create the world the way that it, that it was? Uh, Bruxy Cavey, friend of mine, uh, <laughs> pointed out that uh, a man by the name of um, Galileo 
one day stood up in front of the church and he said, the world's actually round. And the church deemed him a heretic and treated him very poorly. But Bruxy went to a, a museum one time and they have Galileo's finger. And he, he was blown away because he's like, did nobody notice what is actually happening here? Because it's his middle finger on display. It's interesting, historically, the things that we've deemed heresy and not heresy, and now our thinking would be completely that the world is round. Not everybody. We still have some flat earthers out there, but the majority of people would say, yeah, the world's round. Galileo wasn't a heretic, but he was deemed a heretic, but he got the last laugh with his middle finger. You need to understand that kind of dynamic that happens throughout history, right? There were a lot of creation stories around, but don't miss the concept of this was written as a narrative in a time where there was many gods. That's important context. So with that in mind, let's read the opening. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth, he says, was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now these opening two verses, they actually, when you read it in the the Hebrew, really start off in a dramatic way. Like how many people read that? They're like, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right? Like, and we're like, yada, yada, heard this story before, kind of been there, I've read this a million times, I've studied it in Sunday school. Well, you're losing the way that the text actually reads in the original language. It is literally like a da-da, like in the beginning, right? It's kind of like a Star Wars opening, but like much more excitable. I don't even know, because I barely know anything about Star Wars, so I'm not sure. Uh, but it just popped into my mind. Anyway, This is a very dramatic way to open the scriptures. Don't miss that. But we miss it because of our familiarity of the text. And many of us Christians, we also kind of inadvertently are trained to think that Genesis begins with with God making a ball of like kind of cosmic Play-Doh out of nowhere, right? But that doesn't actually sound like that's what's happening in the text at all. And it definitely doesn't sound like the type of story that the ancient Israelites would tell about how their God creates. So I'm going to be constantly throughout this series reminding you to put on your ancient glasses because that's how we need to read the text. And so how would they have shared this story and read this story? And it wouldn't have been God making this ball of cosmic Play-Doh out of nowhere. It just wouldn't have been like that. And the text doesn't read like that. The text says that in the beginning, God created. But it could also, and you'll see this in other versions of the Bible, be interpreted as in the beginning, God began to create. Either way, folks, Here's the core message. God is creating something, and that something is important and radical and central to the entire narrative of the Bible. And then it goes on to say that the earth was formless and empty. 
or a more literal translation might actually read chaotic. That the earth was chaotic. The Hebrew phrase that the, the NIV that I'm reading from is rendered as formless and empty. It actually, in the original text, has a lot more drama attached to it. We, we kind of lose this, this strength uh, of the text in our English translations by just literally translating it as formless and empty. If you're a, a Hebrew at this time, you would read that in a form of utter chaos. So when you read this verse, don't miss this sense of chaos within it. God is taking something full of chaos and he's taming it. That's what's happening here in the original text. He's taking something full of chaos and he's taming it. This is super important if you're going to read this text through an ancient lens. Remember, there are a lot of ancient creation stories flying around. When this would have first came out, there was a lot of these narratives. So I encourage you to look them up. Google them. Google creation stories. It's really super interesting. But Israel's story, this one that we have in Genesis, is uniquely different from all of the other stories. Because the God of Israel, he takes something full of chaos and transforms that chaos into something beautiful. This is very, very different than these other creation stories. I'm going to reference creation stories, little bits and pieces of it, but I really, I don't have the time to get into all the stories. Plus there's kids in the room. And so I can't possibly narrate the fact that Marduk cuts his grandmother in half. Anyway, I can't do that in front of kids, right? And so I can't share all of this stuff with you. And so I just encourage you to Google it, but I am going to reference it a little bit, but it's going to feel like there's some holes. And that's simply because I just don't have time to unpack it. But I believe you guys all have access to the internet. You're really active on YouTube. And so you can find information on it. And for the sake of time, I'm also not going to read through every single day of creation. Instead, everybody's like, oh, thank goodness, because I memorized it in Sunday school. Instead, I just want to point out a couple important patterns that are actually happening here. So I don't know if you've ever noticed, but on day one, and one, two, and three, God creates space out of the chaos. So he's taming this chaos by creating space in the first three days. And then day four to six, God begins to fill that space. He creates space by separating the light from the dark, by separating the waters above and below, and he moves the oceans to create space on dry land. This is what we see in the text. Then God begins to fill the space by creating the sun and the moon and the stars, the sea creatures and the birds, and finally the animals and us human beings. God literally calms the chaos and creates order. That's the way that the text reads. That's the message that it's giving us. He makes sense of all of the chaos. This is important when we read it through this ancient lens that I'm talking about, because all of the other stories, they created more chaos. 
They took chaos and just added chaos to it. It wasn't tamed or put into order. Only the God of Israel does that. And even more importantly, the God of Israel did all of this over six days and it was effortless. You need to hear that in the text. Over six days and it was effortless. Now, there's pages upon pages upon pages that you can read about the word yom, which is the word translated day. And at first, when I first wrote this sermon, I walked you through like a two-hour teaching just on the word yom. Uh, And so what I want you to recognize is that... uh, We don't know. (laughs) What does the Bible mean by day? We actually don't have any concrete evidence because the word yom is used in many different ways all throughout scripture. Sometimes it means 12 hours. Sometimes it means 24 hours. Sometimes it means thousands of years. We actually just don't know. That's why scholars write so many pages on this topic and they come to hypotheses, but they don't have any concrete evidence. Solutions, And so you can believe in a literal six days or a figurative six days, and you're not going to miss the message that's being given to us in Genesis. If you get stuck on that conversation, you will remain stuck forever and probably read your Bibles wrong because you're going to miss what's actually happening in the opening narrative that sets the stage for the entire text. So I can't plead with you enough. You can look into things in interest, but don't get stuck. Don't get stuck. So I'm going to help you to get a little bit unstuck, at least I hope. Folks, this this simple fact that he created in six days and it was effortless is so drastically different than the other pagan creation stories. Like it isn't even funny how drastically different this is. Their stories are always rooted in violence, war, family disputes, showing how self-centered the gods truly are. The closest story that we actually have to the book of Genesis actually comes from Babylonian culture. Now, if you know anything about the history of Israel, you might remember the era of Babylonian captivity. We got all kinds of VeggieTales shows about it. Different thing, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? And, and this, this era of Babylonian captivity, it was a, an era of horrible oppression in the time of Israel. So it's super fascinating to me at how close the Babylonian narrative of creation actually mirrors the Genesis narrative. The Babylonian narrative, it's called the Numa Elish, and it, it, Google that sometime. It's, it's almost literally mirrors our story, except a few key things. Genesis stresses how God simply speaks all of these things into being. Where the Babylonian story reads more kind of like a Jerry Springer episode. Anybody remember Jerry Springer? Right? It's chaotic. It's like family disputes and war and fighting and battle, kinds of drama in the other stories, but God's drama is just spoken. Like, you know, the grandson named Marduk, who they believe is part of the creation of the world in the Babylonian story, and he kills his grandmother in a horrific, horrible way to create the expanse between the sky and the earth. 
It's nasty. The God of Israel created the cosmos solo and effortlessly. What a drastic difference between these stories. There's no family drama like Marduk and his crazy grandmother. There's no violence like the Babylonian story. And all of other creation stories have this craziness attached to it. All the good stuff that makes wicked movies. But yet God just speaks. Our story in Genesis, folks, lacks violence and oozes love and compassion. It's the only creation story that reads that way. You see, the God of love creates by speaking. That is how powerful love is. No drama, just love. Now, this leads me to another significant difference in the pagan stories compared to our Genesis account. And we find this on the sixth day in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created mankind. So this is, this is a distinct difference here. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, He created them. Now, again, we've all read this before. We all quote this to proof text different things in our society today. But could we be missing the point of most of it? You see, the God of Israel, as he spoke the world into existence, created humanity in his image. It was only after six days that God, on the sixth day, that God declared that it was very good. Have you ever noticed in the narrative up to this point? He says each day, and he saw that it was good, and he saw that it was good. But on the sixth day, when he created humanity, the text shifts, and it says, and he saw that it was very good. Now, I don't know about you, but as I observe humanity today, I'm not sure that that's the response that I would have. But he says this in the text because human beings literally bear God's likeness and image. In other words, God created human beings in his image so that they would represent him in this newly crafted world. This is literally unheard of in the ancient world. This would be like as an ancient reader, just a God who loves, a God who wants to be part of our lives, a God who creates with us In mind? The gods were always about themselves. They're never giving human beings such an important part to play, but the God of Israel does. Listen to what he goes on to say in the text. It says, God blessed them. 
and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and every living creature that moves on the ground. I think we might have a really screwed up view of what rule means, but we'll get into that in chapter three. Then God said, I'll give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. Speaks it. And it was so. And God saw that he, that, what, that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. These human beings that God creates were literally made to represent his likeness on earth. He says that they would rule over creation. We're going to see that next week, that these human beings would also hold this very specific relationship with this God himself, and just how radical and different this is from these other creation stories. None of them give humanity this kind of status or importance. Actually, the Bible, if you read specifically in the Psalms, uh, the Bible really represents how much this blows the people's minds. In Psalm chapter 8, verses 4 to 5, it says, What is mankind that you are mindful of them? Right? So they're trying to wrap, the, the psalmist is trying to wrap his head around, like, what is mankind that you're actually mindful of them? Keep in mind, ancient thinking is constantly thinking of the gods, right? Even the Israelites had that taint to them, the gods, the many gods. And what god is actually mindful of us human beings? And he says, what, what is mankind that you're mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. There's actually Hebrew writing that, that talks about uh, narratives around the angels actually being kind of upset of how well God views humanity that we're like just below the angels kind of thing, and they're not really super uh, happy with that. It's, this is like super radical. Human beings are image bearers of the God who created them, made to rule over all of creation. This is insane, folks, and we totally miss the insanity of it. It's so insane that it's beautifully awesome. Now, in the Babylonian story, humanity was not made in the... Human beings were created as an afterthought to do the grunt work the gods were too good to do. That's how one creation story reads. Never has there been until Genesis a creation story that makes human beings so important and so central to how the world is going to work. It's always the self-centered gods wanting to be the center of attention and humanity being treated like garbage. I stress this over and over again, folks, because you really need to get this point in the narrative. If you miss it, you miss it all. 
There's some drastically different things. Very simple point, Steve. God gives a crap about his nature to the world around us. He protects us, promises that he will always take care of us, and he opens up the world of opportunities for us. The God that we live for knows each one of our names, knows every hair or lack thereof on our heads, literally. The story of creation says that God literally lives in us, that we bear his image. The story of creation should bring you to a place, folks. When you read this text, it shouldn't be like, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I wonder, what does the word yom mean? And then we spend like hours and days focusing on all of those kinds of things. That's fine. That's academic work. I do academic work. I get it. I'm part of those conversations. But here's the point for your everyday Christian. He protects us. He promises that we'll always be taken care of. And he loves us. And he made us like him. He knows us. He's part of our lives. The story of creation, folks, It is what begins that reverent awe that scripture talks about when we see who our God is compared to all the other gods. I would argue that we still have lots of gods in our world today. It might not be, for some it might be these spiritual sort of mystic gods, but for others it just might be simply money or your time or your possessions or your need for control. All of those things can begin to run our lives and would be defined as becoming your God. But when we read the creation story, we get this awe because he just simply speaks and it appears and he loves and he creates and he draws us in to his presence. I would argue, I've argued this both academically and I would argue this also in front of you as a congregation. I do not believe that Genesis was written to answer our curiosity about how the universe came to be, although I believe it does. I believe it gives us those answers. I don't think that it was written to show us that the Israelites have a basic grasp on the Big Bang Theory. I don't think it was written to show us that the Israelites had a grasp on the expanding universe or Einstein's theory of relativity, considering none of that existed when they read this text. No ancient person would have ever read the text that way. They had no understanding of those notions. Genesis was written to tell the Israelites that their God, and not the other gods of all the other nations, was the chaos tamer. And therefore, this God and this God alone was worthy of worship. The book of Genesis and its creation story, when read through the lens of ancient times, should bring us to our knees in awe. And it's my hope that we progress through this Genesis narrative that you'll see the awe and the wonder that it brings to help us live our lives with Jesus at the center. The God of Israel loves us so much 
that he created all things with us in mind. And he's present with us still to this very day, even though the story gets real messy. He's active and he's invested in those he's created. This, folks, is mind-blowing to the original reader. And I hope, I hope that as you begin to walk with me through these narratives in Genesis, that we would be able to strip away the boredom of Sunday school and we'd be able to read the awe within the story. Our God loves, our God saves, our God creates by speaking it into existence. No war, no violence, just love.